I want us to take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And really, uh, more than, uh, I guess, a typical expository message tonight, I just want to walk through some of the things that we see here in John chapter 20 in order to, in order really to, to have in our mind and our heart exactly what John would want us to have, right? In order that we might believe. And of course, most of us here, if not all of us here, uh, would profess to know Christ, and and uh, and we do know Jesus Christ by faith if we believed upon Him, and so we are believers. But our belief is is being solidified every day. It's being uh, strengthened every day that we uh, read the Scriptures and know more about what God tells us about His Son. And so we want to just have some of that tonight. We want to open our time just with a word of prayer as we dedicate our time to the Lord. Father, thank you again for this opportunity, this this challenge to us. Not a challenge by way of, of just study, but a challenge by way of what we hear and what we know of you and, and an encouragement to us, a challenge for our own life that we might live it out that we might allow what you teach us to be reflected in our life so that we could be like Christ. Thank you for uh, the gospel. Thank you that it's clear. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to understand. We pray that others would, would have their eyes opened as well. We know that without you quickening them and opening their eyes and granting them faith, they will never believe. It's impossible for a dead sinner to believe upon you without your intervention. And so we pray to that end. We pray knowing that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is your power to save. And so we, with John, want to echo those words that this is here that you might believe. So Lord, um, we believe, but help our unbelief tonight. So we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was thinking about our time tonight, and if I was to ask you a question tonight, uh, if I was to ask you, what is your favorite Bible passage? Immediately when I say that, I'm sure your minds are flooded with all kinds of things. Many of us quickly think of either verses or sections of the Bible that have become precious to us for one reason or another. Maybe it's a verse that has truly resonated more clearly with you as you were facing some difficult time, as we even heard from some of the answered prayers tonight, or maybe it's a passage that you've returned to often when you've gone through difficult times in your life, circumstances that fit closely to what is happening in that portion of Scripture. And very often our favorite passages change in light of what we are reading or what we are studying at the time or maybe what we are going through at a certain time. But I would suggest to all of us here tonight that whether we may or may not say it tonight in answer to that very question about what is our favorite passage, I will say that John chapter 20 is one that will fit that category for all of us. Why do I say that? Because as we have seen in our study already of this gospel, and as we know from our own Christian experience, regardless of how long we have been saved, this chapter speaks about the pinnacle of the Christian faith. This is a chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, in fact, the pinnacle of our Christian faith. That is what we hope for. And it is 
a reality that must be believed or there is no salvation. Those who do not believe in the resurrection who claim to have a relationship with God are deceiving themselves because central to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ is his resurrection. Without the resurrection, we are, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we are, of most people in all the world, the most to be pitied if the resurrection does not happen. Jesus lived. He died at the hands of wicked men, as the scriptures tell us. He was buried, and he rose again, and no one was there on that morning that it happened. Let me shock you that I said that that way. No one was there to see it. No one was there at the resurrection when Jesus actually rose from the dead, except God and possibly even the two angels, as we will see tonight. There were several who went to see the place where he had been laid. They saw the place empty. The body of Jesus was not there. But they did not see the resurrection happen. They too had to believe. They too had to believe. They had to have faith in what the scriptures said. Which is what we found out from John in the previous verses. That John believed. He saw what was there and he believed. That's what it said in verse 8. For up to that moment, he didn't understand what the Scriptures had said, that he must rise again from the dead. He didn't get it yet from the Scriptures, but when he saw, then he realized the Scriptures were true and right. He believed. So they too who went there had to believe. And this is the truth that we heard previously as we were looking at this text. It's all about the Scriptures. Just as it said in the previous chapter in verse 36, for these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. What things? The fact that Jesus Christ had not one bone broken. That when the Roman soldiers came in order to finally finish the case, in order to make sure he was dead, he was already dead. He died quicker than anybody else. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. Also in verse 37 of that same chapter, again, the Scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. In other words, he died that quickly so that the Roman soldiers, out of a sense of duty, would just pierce his side, unbeknownst to them, fulfilling the Scriptures. It's about the Scripture. And we saw that last time in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. It was all about the Scriptures. John saw the very things that Peter saw when Peter entered the tomb. The grave wrappings are lying there in the place that Jesus was laid, and yet the head covering was lying in a whole separate place. And John understood at that very moment that this was not a hoax. This was not some plan perpetrated on them to try to deceive them. He understood then what the Old Testament Scriptures had been declaring for hundreds of years. Jesus was alive. He understood that when the Messiah would come, He would suffer at the hands of wicked men, that He would die, but also that He would rise again. And now John gets it. John gets it. 
That's why over towards the end of the chapter, John says there are many other signs, therefore, that Jesus performed. This, that, that, that theme of this entire book comes on the heels of the resurrection. It comes on the heels of John writing all that he's written up to this point and capping it off with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the things. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed, including the resurrection. In the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Now John's faith is sight. Now John's faith is sight. Now he understands that Jesus is alive. And as we go to verse 11, and almost well, really, verse 10, in an almost anticlimactic fashion, John says in verse 10 that the disciples leave the tomb and go to their homes. It's almost an anti-crescendo, if you will. Here is Jesus. Here they run. Here they go. They haven't seen him yet, but they go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. They see the remnants of what did take place. John believes, and it's almost like the music stops. So the disciples go away to their homes. We know John doesn't mean they went to Galilee. We know that because they are all together that very night in Jerusalem. In fact, verse 19 tells us that in John chapter 20. So this must be the home that they all gathered together in while in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. These were those who were outcasts, really, of the Jewish synagogue already because they were followers of Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus. Therefore, He would have hated them. They would have all been very scared of what might come about when the Jewish leaders find out what happened to Jesus. They were unsure of what kind of ramifications might come their way when Pilate is informed about what took place. They had no idea, in fact, of the secret plot that the Jewish leaders made with the soldiers who came back to tell them what took place, how they were going to plan to take care of the Roman soldiers, even in the place of, even in the view of Pilate, because upon their heads was a death sentence since the prisoner, or since they didn't carry out their orders. So in order to keep them out of hot water, they were going to spin this false narrative that Jesus had been taken there was a false resurrection, if you will. The disciples had stolen the body. That was their idea. And so the followers of Christ are all there. They're all there that night after they leave. They went to their homes. They're all gathered together. But not Mary. Not Mary. Notice what it says here in our text for tonight, verse 11 through 18. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. I find it interesting as I continue to read this passage that while no human saw the actual resurrection, the first human to see the risen Savior is Mary. Mary. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail about Mary. We know from Scripture a little bit about her. We know that she was a demon-possessed woman from the town called Magdala. That's why she's called Mary Magdalene. That's how you were identified in those days. You're either identified by your father's name or you were identified by the town in which you were from, i.e., why they called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. This is how you were identified. And so this is Mary, Mary of Magdala, and she has been a disciple of Jesus for some time. Ever since he healed her of her demon possession, she was possessed, by the way, by seven demons. Turn over for a moment to Luke chapter 8, where we just get a little glimpse into her life. Luke chapter 8. Just a very little snippet in the first two verses, really, of Mary. She was one of the ministering women. It came about soon afterwards. After what? After Jesus had sent out uh, healed the centurion, he had deputized John to go out. He had he had said some parables, done some teaching, and it came about soon afterwards that he began going about from city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. We don't know a whole lot more about Mary than that. Here is a woman. There's no great detail of her in the Bible and extra biblical antiquities and material like that. Some try to say that she was a prostitute. There's no real proof of that in antiquities that we can find, as some claim it to be. All we can truly and honestly say is that she was a sinner. She was a sinner like us. She happened to have herself possessed by seven demons at one time, but other than that, she was a sinner like us before God saved her. In fact, she's only mentioned in the Bible 14 times. 14 times, and eight of those times she's listed by name with the other women. With some other group of women. Here in Luke chapter 8, you see her with Josanna and Joanna and a few others. But it's interesting, she's always named first. Every time she's mentioned, when she's mentioned with other women, she's always named first. And I, I think that's simply because... 
It really tells us of her continued and known faithfulness to Jesus Christ in the ministry. I think she, that was her reputation. She was known to be faithful and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, particularly and especially after she was healed. And it's interesting that with that kind of past, it's interesting that she would be the first person that Jesus shows himself alive. I think that's interesting. But when you actually ponder it, it really isn't surprising at all. Because that's God's way, isn't it? That's God's way of doing things. In fact, remember back in chapter 4 of John's Gospel? Go back to chapter 4. You may just know it right off the top of your head when I mention chapter 4. You know what I'm going to say. Because right here in John chapter 4, there's another woman. There's another woman that we see, and it's a woman from Samaria. The woman of Samaria. And remember what happens in the narrative there. As Jesus is passing through Samaria, they stop, and Jesus finds this woman near the well, and Jesus is talking with her. That is strange enough that a Jewish man would be talking to a woman who was a Samaritan because from a purely Jewish perspective, Samaritans were, in fact, half-breed Jews. They were Jews by... uh, They were both uh, half-Jews and progeny of half-Jews that had intermarried and intermingled with the Gentile nations. So that's why they were called Samaritans. And so for Jesus, a Jew, to be talking to a Samaritan was one thing, but for him to be talking to a Samaritan woman was a whole nother thing. And John, in John's gospel, in John chapter 4, we don't get a name of this woman. We don't know who the woman's name is in Samaria, but like Mary, she also had a sinful life. In fact, we know she had been married several times and was at the time Jesus was speaking with her, even with another man who wasn't even her husband. So she was a multiple offender of adultery. And yet it was to that woman that Jesus first declared that he was Messiah. John chapter 4, that's the first place Jesus declares his Messiahship, and he declares it to a woman. And he declares it to a woman who has this heinous, sinful past. A half-breed, outcast Samaritan woman who was filled with sin. Go for a moment over to Matthew chapter 1. I think this is even more shocking in one way, and yet not shocking at all. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Even there, there are women listed. It's not normal. A genealogy typically didn't have the women. It followed in the men's line, but they're here. And who are they? The first woman mentioned is in verse 3. Her name is Tamar. You see that in Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who was Tamar? Tamar was a Canaanite woman, Gentile woman, who had been brought into the family of Judah through marriage. She was the husband of one of Judah's sons. 
fact, Judah's oldest son is who she was married to initially until he was killed by God. And Tamar was to marry her, his brother, so that his brother could fulfill the Deuteronomic law in order to bring up a progeny under his brother's name. And he would not do that. So God killed him as well. So she was without any husband in that family after being brought in. And Tamar devised a plan whereby she would prostitute herself in order to seduce her father-in-law to come and lie with her. Judah being her father-in-law, she had already been married to his two sons. And so here's Tamar, a woman who deceives her father-in-law and becomes pregnant and bears a son by her father-in-law. So in Matthew 1, Tamar is listed in the genealogy of Jesus, a Gentile prostitute woman. Then in verse 5, Verse 5, you see, and to Solomon was born, or to Solomon was born Boaz, and to, by who? By Rahab. Rahab, another Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho. We know the story from the Old Testament. How Rahab hid the spies of Jerusalem so that, or of, of Israel so that they could come and overtake the city. She was preserved by God, and now here she is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then in that same verse, in Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Who was Ruth? We know there's an Old Testament book listed by her very name that's all about God, but Ruth originally was an an idol-worshipping Moabite woman. She, too, a Gentile woman. A woman who worshipped idols prior to coming into the family of God. Then, in verse 6, And to Jesse was born David the king. To Jesse was born David the king. To whom was the king born? To David was born Solomon, what? By her who had been the wife of Uriah. What's her name? Bathsheba. We know her. She had been the wife of Uriah who committed adultery with David and to whom was born Solomon. She was an adulteress and a conspirator to murder. All of these are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is a God of mercy and grace. God is a God of mercy and grace. So, take that thought back to John chapter 20. Why would Mary be a witness to the resurrection? Why would Mary be the first to see our risen Savior? Because of grace, because of mercy. This is why. 
So what I want us to do tonight is just walk through this passage and look at the grace of God on display. Just look at the grace of God on display. And I want us to remember as we look at this that the only proof that we need for the resurrection is the Scriptures. That's the only proof we need. What God says, God does. He said Jesus would rise from the dead, and He did. These eyewitnesses that we see here in the end of John's Gospel account, the witnesses that we see in the book of Acts before Jesus ascends to glory, they only give greater confirmation of what we already know to be true. Even if Jesus was never seen, we know it to be true. Why? Because faith is sight. Faith is sight. Sight is never faith. Faith is sight. It only can strengthen the already irrefutable truth of what God has said. That's all it can do. People find antiquities about the Scriptures all the time. We go, oh, finally. Sometimes our heart goes, oh, finally, now I know the Bible's true. No. The Bible was true before. It's always been true. It's always been right, whether we ever have anything from antiquities that God graciously allows us to see. Whether they ever found the scrolls in Qumran caves, we still know the Scriptures are true. Because faith is sight. Remember in John chapter 12, verse 37 John says this of Jesus, though he had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, they were not believing him. They saw all kinds of things that Jesus did, and yet they weren't believing in him. Why? Because seeing miracles doesn't bring about faith. Jesus himself said in Luke 16, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Right? If they don't listen to the Word of God, that's what they had, Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to the Word of God, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And so here we are in John 20. Mary is standing outside the tomb, and she's weeping. She's weeping. And it says, as she wept, she stoops down and looks into the tomb. Verse 11, Mary standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She had gone there to make a proper burial of Jesus. Jesus had been buried in haste, remember, by Joseph and Nicodemus. They had been taken to the tomb quickly before the Sabbath day began. Someone couldn't hang on the cross on the Sabbath day. They had to get Jesus off the cross fairly quickly in order that they wouldn't violate the Sabbath day. So here is Mary and the other ladies who go to the tomb to give a proper burial. She was hoping, hoping that somebody might be there who could roll the stone away so they could put some more spices on the body of Jesus, minimize the stench of death. And what does she find? She finds the tomb empty. She's weeping. Literally, literally in the original language, that means uncontrollable sobbing. She is in a state of uncontrollable sobbing. He is not there. She sees into the tomb. As she stoops down, she looks in. It is empty. 
There's nothing there. And what does she expect? She expects the worst. She expects the worst because she doesn't expect resurrection. Somebody's stolen the body. That's what's on her mind. I was reading this week the late J.C. Ryle. He once wrote this, quote, two-thirds of the things we fear in life never happen. Two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away in vain. It says of Mary, her tears are for the tears of a broken heart, forlorn, frustrated, lonely, not understanding anything that had happened, having lost the object of her pure love. Unquote. He's right. This is Mary, out of love, confused, sobbing. What she fears hasn't really happened. The very thing she fears has happened in her mind that has happened has not happened at all. And her tears are for naught. And so she looks in. Verse 12, she looks in and sees two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. Matthew 16 and Luke 24, parallel passages, both tell us that there were two men. That's how it reads to us that these were two men. We know they were angels. These angels apparently must have taken on some kind of male likeness. She doesn't know they're angels. She just sees them. We know they're angels because of what it says here in the text, but she doesn't know that. She just sees these two men sitting there. She looks in. And there's the place where the body was, but rather than a body, there's these two angels, one on each end. Think about that. You think about the picture of the two cherubim on each end of the mercy seat of the covenant, Ark of the Covenant, as they overshadow the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled in order that God called it the mercy seat. The place where we find mercy before a holy God And here is this place of death, the tomb, where God's angels sit on each end where the sacrifice once laid. I don't know that that's what John is trying to show us a picture of, but it certainly brings that reminder to my mind. The place where God's mercy is poured out. Verse 13, the angels say to her, woman, why are you weeping? Woman woman really was a term of endearment. It wasn't a derogatory term. Why are you weeping? Her eyes filled with water, her face probably flush with the emotion of it all. And she says to them, because I'm weeping because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. You see, she's still thinking in earthly terms. She's still down here. She's still on, on, on a physical level. Even though Jesus had said He would rise, she didn't believe it yet. She's sobbing. She's not sure who, but that's the only thing that could explain the empty tomb to her. Somebody must have taken the body. This is her Lord. 
This is the one she's loved. This is the one she's followed. This is the one she's dedicated her life to. This is the woman who had been rescued from him by, from seven demons who plagued her life constantly. One of those who had been in sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ over the time that he walked on this earth, and now he's gone. He's gone. To her, he's dead. In fact, she can't even accomplish what she had come to the tomb to do, to prepare his body. So what happens? So what happens? Before the angels could even respond to her, they asked the question, she gives an answer, and before they could even answer her, she says this. When she had said this, it says, we said what? Said what she said in verse 14 or verse 13, because they had taken away my Lord. I, I don't know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. Don't, don't miss it. Don't miss that transition right there. When she came to the tomb, she was hoping to find him dead. She was coming to the tomb with that in her mind. That's what she saw three days ago. Jesus laid in there. Now the stone's there. She's hoping the stone's rolled away. The stone happens to be moved. The body is gone. She comes to the tomb hoping to find him dead. And Jesus, get this, Jesus waits at the tomb to show himself to her alive. She came out of love for him and he remains out of love for her. This first witness, this Gentile woman, Jesus is standing there in verse 14, and she doesn't know it's him. I don't know why. Why wouldn't she recognize him? We don't know why. Maybe it's because her eyes are flooded with tears and the physical reality of it all. She's still crying in her mind. There's no reason to believe in a resurrection. I think that's what doubt does. That's what doubt does. It blinds our eyes to seeing the real truth. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Mary has doubted what Jesus has said before. Jesus had said he would rise again, but it doesn't seem to have happened, at least in her mind. I think that's what doubt does. Blinds our eyes. I think that's what was taking place on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus was walking with those two disciples because it says in that text they were hoping that Jesus was the one. They were hoping Oh, if it was just true, but it doesn't seem to be true. He he died. We were hoping that he was the one. And in that word hope, there is human doubt. It says that in the text, in verse 16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Luke 24, verse 16. I don't think that was necessarily a supernatural blinding. I think it was a blinding by the reality of their doubt in the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. That he would rise from the dead. So here's Mary in the same condition. She didn't recognize him. In fact, I think we can add on a theological level that nobody 
recognizes him unless he discloses himself to them. Nobody does. And so Jesus, in verse 15, does that. He says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She says to herself, I I don't know who this is, but this must be the gardener. This must be the guy who caretakes around the place. That's what it says. Supposing him to be the gardener. She doesn't know who he is, but she supposes who he might be. And she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have him laid. I'll take him away. Don't bother with it anymore. I'll, I'll take care of it all. She thinks he's just a gardener. Thinks he's just somebody there who happened to be in the area. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Mary, Mary, when she hears that, she turns and says to him, and it says in your text Hebrew, but it's really Jewish Aramaic, Rabboni. It's really the emphatic way of saying teacher. She knew exactly who he was now. He said to her, Miriam, that's the Aramaic for Mary, Miriam. And she turns and says to him in Hebrew, Teacher, go back for a minute to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Remember in John chapter 10, the parable of the good shepherd, Jesus is talking about himself. He's highlighting the reality of him being the shepherd. Speaking... And he uses all this metaphorical language. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is the hireling and not the shepherd. The one who isn't the owner of the sheep beholds the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he's a hireling and he's not concerned about the sheep. He's indicting the Pharisees for their lack of care for God's people. And he's saying, but I'm the true shepherd. Verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I didn't read it purposefully because I want us to go back to it right here in verse 3. To him, the doorkeeper opens. To who? He who enters by the door. He's the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. They know his voice. Mary knew his voice. Mary knew his voice. She knew the way he spoke her name. And immediately he knows or she knows when she hears him say Miriam that it's him. And what's her response? 
She worships Him. She worships Him. This is her response. Matthew 28 says that the women, when they met Jesus, the other women that met Jesus, when they met Jesus, they came and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. That's what it says in Matthew 28. They put their arms around His feet and they were clinging to Him and worshipping Him. That's what Mary does. Mary bows before Jesus and begins to worship Jesus. She goes from being stunned that He isn't there to an expression of joy that He is there, and she holds on for dear life. I'm not letting go. And so Jesus says to her in verse 17, Stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. She's holding on, doesn't want to ever let go again. And Jesus says, Stop clinging to me. Not probably in the way, surely not in the way I just said it. It sounds like he's saying it in a derogatory way, but certainly he doesn't mean it in that way. It's a very strong command that he's saying to her. And we ask the question, why would Jesus be saying that? Why would he say, stop clinging to me? Well, he gives the answer here. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Stop clinging to me, Mary. I have, I have yet to ascend to heaven. I have to ascend to heaven. I have to go back to glory. Remember what he said to the other disciples? If I don't go, the Spirit doesn't come. I must go. It's good that I go. Because when I go, the Spirit will come. The Helper, He will lead you into all truth. I must go. But he's saying to Mary, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended. I have to go. That was a reminder of the words in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I'm always amazed at this phrase, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy set before Him, what joy? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. What joy was that? The joy set before Him was returning to His former glory. But not simply so that He might be glorified again, but so that the Spirit would come. The Spirit would come to us so that we might be with Him in that glory. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him ascended into heaven so that the Spirit would come to us as He promised, so that we would be with Him in glory, all to the glory of God the Father. Mary, I can't stay. I have to go to the Father. So hurry, hurry, Mary. You go to my brethren. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Go to my brothers. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the first time in John's Gospel that the disciples are called brothers. 
brothers of Jesus. Something's changed here. When Christ rose, something changed when Christ rose. All of those who are his are now called brothers. All of those who are his are brothers. His death on the cross and his resurrection made us brothers. It made us brothers. And Hebrews 2.9 says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. So by his work on the cross, we have been placed in Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. We are in him forever. So he says to Mary, say to my brothers, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. In other words, you have now entered into the relationship that I have with my father. You have now entered into the relationship that I have with my father. So listen, beloved, this is what it means for us as Christians. This is what it means for us as believers in Christ. Our God is Christ's God. Our Father is Christ's Father. Why? Because we are in Christ. Go and tell them we are brothers. We have the same relationship to the Father as Jesus Christ has. We are His children. We are not gods. We are not little gods. We are not Christ. But we have a relationship with the Father just like He does. And so in verse 18, Mary does just that. She dispatches herself and announces to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And here's what He said. I've seen the Lord. And here is what He told me, what a shock. What a shock. Not the shock that she told them. The real shock is that they didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. Doesn't say that here in John's gospel, but it says it in Luke chapter 24. And they came and told the disciples... They thought it was nonsense. The women came telling these things to the apostles, Luke 24, verse 10, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Shock. The beauty of this entire day is that their chance is coming. Their chance is coming. It begins in verse 19, when it was evening on that day. Their chance is coming. We'll get to that next time, but here's the thing for us. Our chance is now. Our chance is now. The Scriptures declare it. The eyewitness has seen it. It has been spoken of just as it was. 
And we must believe it. That's why it's here. That's why John put it here. That's why John put this account here. That's why John highlights Mary seeing Jesus. That's why John puts it in the way he puts it in. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of God. That he did rise from the dead. And it's true whether any eyewitnesses ever saw him or not. It's true. But by God's grace and according to his mercy, he did show himself to some. And we read of it right here in the scriptures. What grace, what mercy. Well, we'll get to the other guys next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time tonight, just for walking us through this text, seeing the reality of Mary, seeing the reality of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and that the most heinous of sinners are included. That really says something to us. That we're not so sinful that we could be outside, unsavable those who are so unsavable that you would never condescend to us, cause us to see you to be made alive by faith. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for Mary and her willingness out of love for you to go and for your love for her, that you would show yourself to her, that she might proclaim it to others. You can only imagine what those men would have thought. And I wonder how much we would have been just like them, thinking it'd be nonsense. Lord, help our unbelief. Strengthen our belief and help our unbelief. And help us proclaim these things to all that we know, to others around us, that they might know Jesus Christ, regardless of whether they think it's nonsense or not. We pray that you would use us this week to that end. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.